Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, we're joined by some of our writers to hear about their favourite beaches as we take a look at the British seaside. But before then, there's of course some Brexit chat as we ask whether Parliament can even stop a no-deal Brexit in the autumn. And at the end, we look at whether Desert Island Discs has lost the plot. As September gets closer, MPs are plotting their way to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Already this week, the ideas that have been floated include persuading the Queen to kick Boris Johnson out of number 10 and cancelling September recess, which is normally reserved for party conference season. But will any of these measures actually work? Jane Forsyth is sceptical, to say the least, in this week's political column, and he writes that number 10 is aiming for a November the 1st election. One for your diary. He war games the next few months with Katie Balls and Catherine Haddon, a procedural expert and Whitehall historian from the Institute for Government. James, in your politics column this week, you write about how the conventions that govern this country are fast evaporating. What do you mean by that? If you go back, the referendums are not in keeping with, I think, our system of government, I think it's fair to say. And that, that has created a tension all along since 2016 between this referendum result and the whole concept of parliamentary sovereignty. That, I think, was then compounded by the 2017 election, where Theresa May basically went to try and get a, a parliament that lined up with the referendum result and spectacularly misfired. And I think we have seen a whole bunch of conventions go out the window. You know, you had John Burke, the Speaker of the House of Commons, overturning procedural rules to limit Theresa May's room for manoeuvre. You had a humble address use to force the government's full legal advice on the withdrawal agreement when there's normally a convention that that, that, that is confidential. And you had Parliament impinging, I think, on the executive's crown prerogative powers by passing a law dictating how Theresa May should behave at a meeting of the European Council. Now, when Theresa May was in number 10, number 10 kind of shook its head at all this stuff, but kind of grudgingly went along with it. I think mean, now that Boris Johnson's in number 10, you've got a very different attitude, which is, right, you want to push the constitutional boundaries? We're going to push them and push them far farther than you were, you were prepared to do. And I think mean, that's what you've seen in the last few days, with number 10 making quite clear that if Boris Johnson lost a vote of no confidence, he wouldn't resign. Instead, he would, as the Fixed-Term Parliament Act allows him to do, spend the next 14 days trying to put together a majority with the aim of then ending up in an election, which would be the other side of October 31st, maybe even just a day afterwards on November 1st. And I think this is where things are getting very fraught. Now, I think it is worth remembering that Parliament is sovereign. So Parliament could pass a law saying that the election campaign only needs to be two weeks long and it can take place on, on a Sunday or whatever. You know, Parliament can do what... If, if you can get a majority of something in Parliament and you can get control of the order paper, you can pretty much do what you'd like. But I think we are heading in for an incredibly volatile autumn because you've got both the anti-no-deal people and the anti-Brexit people in Parliament who aren't entirely the same and, number 10, really prepared to push the constitutional boundaries to the limit. Catherine, as James has just touched on, there are allies of Boris Johnson who believe that Parliament has no clear route to preventing a no-deal Brexit. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think it's very much harder than it was back in the spring. They don't have the mechanisms that they had back then to be able to try and take control of the order paper, amend business motions, you know, all the things that we were seeing then as, as tactics, as new, very innovative tactics, as James has pointed out. 
So they're looking around for ones to do. We saw with the Northern Ireland executive bill a few weeks ago where they made changes to it to try and stop the new government proroguing Parliament, you know, suspending Parliament to get through this period of time by making the government come back on set days every two weeks to report back on what was going on with Northern Ireland and therefore that they couldn't prorogue, they would have to sit. So there are very much fewer opportunities for Parliament to be able to do anything at the moment. That doesn't mean there won't be any. There's all sorts of ideas being thrown around about what they might try to do, uh, different ways that they can do it. Constitutional experts galore on Twitter are exploring all sorts of issues for all sorts of scenarios about what could happen. Whatever happens, I think we're going to be into yet another period of constitutional innovation. I think James is right that it's pushing the boundaries a lot, especially around conventions. And also the legacy of the, the fixed-term Parliament Act, which mm. which we've never... I mean, everyone says, oh, what would convention say Boris Johnson should do if he lost a motion of confidence on the fixed-term Parliament Act? Well, there can't be any convention on that because no Prime Minister has lost a no-confidence vote since the fixed-term Parliament Act came into being, which the fixed-term Parliament Act distinguishes between, between no-confidence and confidence. So it, it, it does... I think muddy the water. I I don't entirely agree because I think the pre-existing conventions do matter. I mean, government is formed from the legislature on the basis of being able to command confidence. If the if if the Commons turns around and says you have not got the confidence of the House and we would want this government to be formed, yes, that's the crucial point. The second point, then then the incumbent government has no legitimacy. You cannot say that they have legitimacy if the Commons has said. And so that's a fundamental convention. I would would agree if the Commons. Back to an alternative. The I think, the, is, I think this they? is. The, yeah. I think there's a much more ambiguous question, which is if he lost a confidence vote, and it was unclear whether anyone could command the confidence of the House of Commons. Where we were still in the position we're in today, where Labour are saying, "Well, it's Jeremy Corbyn or nobody," yeah. and the anti. Boris Johnson rebels in the Tory party weren't prepared to cross that Rubicon. They were prepared to, say, put Hillary Benn in or or some Tory figure, but they weren't prepared to put Jeremy Corbyn in. I, I think then I think we are in a very different yeah. situation. The, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act only says two things. One, you have a vote of no confidence in Her Majesty's Government. If you lose that, it starts a 14-day period in which a vote of confidence in Her Majesty's Government has to be passed. So that implies whoever wins the second vote, and therefore we avoid a general election, has to be the government at the time. So it doesn't say anything about how government formation could happen, about how an alternative government could be formed. Now, You read into what the discussion was when this Act was drafted and they talk about the fact that there are two contrary principles here, two contrary conventions. One is that if you lose the confidence of the House, you should resign, which many people are interpreting as if therefore he loses the first one, he ought to resign then, but that leaves us with no Prime Minister. The second one, though, is that in the past, Prime Ministers did have the ability to go to a general election, which is what happened in 1979 when James Callaghan lost a uh, vote of no confidence. And so the drafters were talking about the fact that you wanted to keep both of those in play. So it's almost like they wanted this ambiguity because they thought, well, politics will sort it all out. But nobody foresaw what is going on at the moment. I was talking to one of the people involved in drafting the Fixed-Term Parliament Act this morning, and they were making the point that the idea of then was that you had 201 Tory MPs, 199 Labour MPs, let's keep the math simple, and 150 Lib Dem MPs. And the idea is it would give that junior coalition partner the ability to shift from one to the other without a general election. Mm. 
and but obviously not in a situation where that parliamentary maps applies. It's mm. not. It's not clear what what the alternative government would have to be put together through far more unconventional yeah. routes than that. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of co- potential constitutional headaches, one of the ideas that's also been floating in, in the many that are currently filling up column inches is whether the Queen would have to use her royal prerogative to kick Boris Johnson out if he refuses to resign. Do you think she could have to do something like that, Catherine? I mean, it's, it's looking increasingly likely. It's the, one of the, you know, fundamentals of all of this is you don't bring the Queen into politics. You know, you, she should remain out of it because it is so damaging to the monarchy. Uh, and she spent her whole reign attempting to avoid any sort of semblance of her being a politicised figure. So from that point of view, absolutely, the palace wants to avoid it, definitely. But in the end, that's the problem. If, you know, Parliament is saying one thing that, you know, if if in this scenario there is an alternative yeah, government, because that's, yeah. that's the crucial bit, and Parliament's saying we would have confidence in this alternative government, we don't in this other one, and for some reason then the Prime Minister still refused to go to the palace and tender his resignation, which would be constitutionally extraordinary, absolutely. It doesn't matter what, how your reading of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act is, that would be extraordinary. Then, yes, you get back to the point of, OK, well, then the, the Queen technically has the ability to dismiss him. There's many more things that would happen before that. You would assume that common sense would prevail, that the palace would put out a sort of feeler of saying, look, don't push us to that. You know, you've got to go. You've clearly got to go. And karma heads would prevail before it got to the point that an actual dismissal, which hasn't happened since, I think, 1834. I know I'm looking for the bedchamber crisis to come back. You know, the <laughs> Queen to refuse to dismiss her ladies. No, I mean, I think this is the crucial point is, can you form the alternative government? I think if, if it is not clear that there is an alternative government that can command support, then I think Boris Johnson is actually in a fairly safe place saying, I'm not going to resign, I'm going to fight a general election. I think it's much, much trickier for him, constitutionally, politically, morally, you know, you pick your adjective, if it, you know, if you've got a situation where 350 MPs are writing to the newspaper saying, we are all prepared to support X person as Prime Minister for the purpose of writing a letter to the European Council and, you know, etc, etc. Um, but James, even were that to happen and say somehow we get a government of national unity that manages to write this letter, that's still only going to be a short period of time, surely, before we head to a general election. Because this government of national unity, and I say it in quote marks, isn't going to be able to agree on much past the fact that they don't want to know the other And it's not going to create much national unity either. I think that's one thing we can say with confidence. No, no, exactly. And I think any government of national unity could only be formed on the basis Government of national unity is wrong phrase. Government of kind of anti-no deal unity, or whatever you want to call it, could only be formed on the basis of all we're going to do is write a letter and go. Because if the idea is to put Jeremy Corbyn in as head of it, I think it is hard to imagine Philip Hammond and David Gork and all those people signing up to the full Corbynite economic agenda. And equally, if it was to put in some other figure, it's hard to imagine that Jeremy Corbyn would put up with that if that person was going to be Prime Minister for weeks and months and they might decide that they'd rather enjoy the job and you might then get a new political party forming around the person of this Prime Minister. I mean, I, I suspect at the moment, though, that Boris Johnson's best hope is that he and Jeremy Corbyn's interests are actually quite aligned at the moment on not allowing anyone but either of them to become Prime Minister. And Catherine, as we go through the various possible constitutional crises, 
What happens if Boris Johnson decides to stay put, refuses to leave, having lost a vote of confidence in his government, and then calls an election, as James puts in his politics column, for the 1st of November? I mean, this would be an extraordinary situation. It goes back to what we're talking about of conventions. Another fundamental convention is that during an election campaign, there are restrictions on government activity. You're not supposed to do anything of a new or continuing nature, announce new spend, new appointments. You're not supposed to use government resources for communications that might be seen to be political, i.e. anything that looks like you're using government official resources for anything campaign so that undermines your ability to do no deal preparation as well as you would want for the first point but then you get into all these arguments about well you know but no deal is already the policy of the government it would be essential it would certainly be essential for the civil service to continue to prepare until it's not the default we need to prepare for it but they argue also that it's you know it is legislated for by parliament so therefore all you're doing is continuing with government policy But the reality is everyone would know that the spirit of that convention is that you don't do something major. In 2010, it was Alistair Campbell having to go and negotiate what contribution the British might make to funding for the Greek economy in the midst of a a financial crisis. And, uh, you know, even that could have been far more controversial than it was if it had committed, you know, the UK above and beyond what what, uh, George Osborne and the Conservatives would have wanted. So compared to that, you know, this is just would be a colossal constitutional crisis because it would you know they would be ignoring something that every politician when faced with a general election since this constitution since this convention has evolved has understood and has understood that it is quite important I can't even really imagine again what that would be like you know the mood in the country the way in which the press would react the way the public would react the way that parliament would react I mean parliament would be sitting during that whole campaign period but you think this is a fractious time I mean it doesn't even compare to what might happen then I think the part of the problem is again we are running into this problem of the length of campaigns set down in the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which takes you up so closely up to October the 31st. And this, is, I think, is part of the problem, because I think if you just get into kind of counting the 25 days now, that there's a a danger that you could have a general election, and if the result is messy, which I think is highly likely, we have a situation where October 11pm on October the 31st comes and goes, and we haven't we still haven't got a government that yeah. can work out whether it wants an extension or doesn't want an extension. Yeah. And there's also another interesting tension, even amongst those who want to stop No Deal. Some of them think that the no confidence thing is an entire red herring mm. because they think anything that might prompt a general election that would lead to Parliament not sitting mm. is not in their interest. Mm. But they, they, they want Parliament to be sitting on October the 30th mm. because they think if Parliament is sitting right up until Brexit Day, that maximises their chances that, you know, they're on the Mr McCorber principle that something might turn up of somehow finding some way to stop this. And some people think this is all a very cunning ruse by number 10 to get them to move very early in September, cause a general election, and then lose their, lose their leverage, essentially, because they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be MPs anymore and they wouldn't be in Parliament anymore able to do anything. Thank you, James. Thank you, Catherine. I'm sure you'll all recognise that theme tune. Desert Island Disc has been on our radios for more than 70 years. In its time, it has cast away countless guests, from Alfred Hitchcock to Maya Angelou, Alan Bennett to David Beckham. 
But when, Melanie McDonough asks, did it all get so boring? In this week's issue, Melanie blames the BBC for focusing on younger listeners and prioritising political correctness over journalistic focus. She argues that poor decision is personified by Lauren Laverne, the current host. So, is she right to say that the show has gone downhill? I'm joined by Kate Chisholm, the Spectator's radio critic, and Michael Heath, our cartoon editor, who was a castaway himself in 2016. Kate, when Lauren Laverne first took over Desert Island Discs in 2018, you wrote in The Spectator that she carried off her role with aplomb. Do you still think that? Probably not. (laughs) I think that now that she's been doing the job for a while, you would have expected her to kind of become more, understand what what the programme is a bit more. I think when I first heard her doing it, she's got such a lovely voice. I think she's a great broadcaster. I thought she was like a breath of fresh air. I actually thought, great, she's perfect for the job because she's got a different approach to interviewing. But I think that as it's gone on, you've realised that it's become very superficial again, which is a very easy programme to to become superficial and has been in the past. But it, it, it had under Kirsty Young developed quite a more penetrating kind of style and a bit more exposing of the person. Whereas I think we've gone back now to it being not really getting inside the person. It, it's never really particularly done that. I mean, Roy Plumley certainly didn't used to do that. But... I've been thinking about it and I think also one of the things is that Kirsty Young was so good at it because she really did her research and she really did understand the person that she was interviewing. I think the problem is that Lauren does so many other things that she doesn't really have enough time to focus on it and really develop an understanding of the person that she's interviewing. So she kind of just accepts what she's presented with and in a way for it to be interesting you've got to go behind that surface. And do you get the sense that listeners are enjoying it? Oh, that's not something I can answer, really, because I sort of just sit at home listening (laughs) and don't really... I mean, I have to confess, when I talk to people about radio, there's not an awful lot that really listen anymore, which is quite striking amongst people I know. They're listening maybe to podcasts, but listening in the way that I still do, which is listening, you know, just switching on the radio and listening... That's a dying form, it seems to me, which is sad. Michael, you were, you were interviewed by Kirsty Young a couple of years ago. You were the castaway. What, what was it like? Well, it was very interesting because it's a very grand thing to be asked to do in this country. I mean, I, <clears throat> I'm old and decrepit, but the thing is that I've been, also got an MBE for reasons I have no idea about, and that's, it's in that area. And you talked about the audience. The audience for this is amazing because it's all over the world. You get that mm. some... India and all the rest of it saying, oh, I loved your work. So it has enormous influence and people sort of genuflect when they see you doing it. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I did it straight off, bang, crash, bang, wallop, roughly as I'm doing it now. And being cartoonist, you don't often get much response. I mean, you may, may bang your brains out doing something, but nobody seems to notice that. But in fact, is that you peel on that oh. and you're like, you know, like, like being... You know, getting a VC or something. It's amazing. This job sitting there talking about being a clapped out cartoonist. You know, you, you may be not good at anything much or drinking yourself silly or being divorced or whatever, but they still remember you as on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> what was Kirsty Young like as an interviewer? What well, she was you... sweet. Yeah, I've but, never but met did... her before. I mean, yeah. I've seen her in the distance. She had yeah. such an enviable life. Uh, seemed to me, it's, yeah. she was doing what she wanted to do, and it would obviously go on forever. 
Well, probably had done it for about 400 years, and he was going on, and people were asking for Jesus, joy of man, desiring every week. Or, or Vaughan Williams, the last thing. Don't forget that. Brahms' is death symphony it reminds me of my dead father. So, oh, right. <laughs> so uh, it was, she just went, you know, as long as you knew what you were doing, and she got on with it, and that was mm. fine. Um, and how did you go about choosing your music? I mean, was it very obvious to you what you wanted? I think she was I, She was very grateful that I knew what I wanted. I think a lot of people that's been on it go, oh, I don't know about that. You know, and they're all saying, oh, just Cliff Richards, uh, but what's it called now? And you, know, so you get a lot of that, and it's very difficult. To or you get the other boys who only have Liszt or only have Beethoven or only have... Uh, opera by Valdi, whatever it is like that, but something like me popping up all over the place saying this, that and the other was okay and we got on fine. We didn't have to re-record or anything. I didn't burst into tears and I was sober. It was, it was fun. <laughs> Kate, one of the criticisms that Melanie makes in her piece is that the sort of problem with Desert Island Discs is it's part of a kind of bigger problem, which is the BBC trying to pander to a younger audience and she says that Lauren Laverne is symptomatic of that. Do you think that's fair? Oh, that's such a big question because definitely the BBC is in a muddle at the moment. It doesn't know how to navigate its way through changing times, basically. It's stuck with a quite a sort of sclerotic kind of management system and it's at the same time realising that if it wants to keep alive, it's it's got to... It's got to there is no younger audience. No, <laughs> no. No, no. Younger person. Yeah. Now that's everyone up to the age of 35. Well, that's actually older than that. Well, no, but I'm assuming that you really are brainless, not you. (laughs) Thank you. You you could be thick as a plank until you're 35 and still listen to rubbish. Rubbish is now number one, right? Rubbish is all over the place, and you, they don't listen. Or there's no way the BBC is going to get the there's, ear, ear roll of some thug to... going. <laughs> thud, thud, well, I don't, I don't no, necessarily uh, believe it no, quite no, like that. No, I think, I think people yeah, will come but, back. I think people will come back if it, they provide them no, with the right. How stuff. many channels out there? The junk they listen to. But is this because people are now listening to podcasts and there are loads of different places that you can now get they don't radio? I don't think the BBC know how no to deal with No one's rushing home this. to listen to Desert Island Dish. No, that's true. But people probably listen to it on the way in to work, Michael, on their, I'm sure on they their do. iPhones. I'm sure or... they do, but not young people. Young people just listen to thud, thud, thud. I listen thud, to it thud. on the way <laughs> in to uh, work. And they don't listen. <laughs> and they don't listen either. No, uh, you're I've... talking about listening yeah. to radio, yeah. but you Which can sit there like that, right? Yeah. And say, good Lord, Alvaro Del. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, yeah. that, yeah. not anymore. They're yeah. just going, <laughs> they don't listen to nothing. They would accept the drivel that they have fed or watch Love Island. Not that there's anything wrong with Love Island, of course. But the, that radio, light program, home service, third program, which I was brought up on, and I had no other education except for Lord yeah, Reith, which I'm very grateful for. Lord Reith taught me a lot of things. And mm. uh, humour, which doesn't exist anymore much, unless you're very lucky. And all that, you like programme, you know what you were getting, and the third programme, you got really interesting plays or whatever. Kate, just finally, and at the end of her piece, Melanie suggests a few people who should like to see presenting Desert Island Discs. Is yeah. there anyone else that you would sort of think would have a good shot at doing it? 
Well, I was thinking about that as well, because I think what you need is someone, and it's what Kirsty Young brought to the programme, and I think probably what Lauren Laverne doesn't really have is that sort of investigative journalistic kind of approach. And so I was thinking someone like Jane Garvey, actually Francine Stott would be great. But I also felt that possibly it's time that the programme had a revamp. <laughs> and instead of just having celebrities, why don't we have some ordinary people? and get them to really talk about music that matters to them in their life. I mean, I think what Michael said about very often they don't know what music to choose is very revealing, because I think that's obviously what comes through. They've just kind of brought together eight discs, which they're not really interested in music. They're only interested in whatever area that they've developed in their lives. And actually, I think what would be really interesting is to get some of those people who get honours in the honours list for being community workers or, or who, who have very interesting lives and, and are also interested in music. Music has already, already always been part of their lives, of which that's true of so many people. And I just think that then you might get a different kind of programme. I think it's probably time it was revamped, actually. Thank you, Kate and Michael. And finally, as summer rolls on, our writers tell us about their favourite British beaches in this week's issue. From Trevone in Cornwall to the Antrim coast in Northern Ireland and a few places you might not have heard of, Tom Holland, Richard Maidley, Peter Hitchens and more reflect on their happiest seaside memories. For our podcast listeners, we've even managed to persuade a few of them to record these reflections for your listening. And to kick us off, here's Michael Heath again. The first beach I remember going to was in 1940, I think it was. World War II had broken out, and it was considered safe uh, for me to go down and live in Devon for a bit and get away from the bombing that was flattening London. And I went down to this lovely bay called Start Point, which was a lovely beach, and a lighthouse. Lighthouses are essential because you can hear them with the mist going... Mm-hmm. And I loved it down there, and I got down on the beach, which is a very dangerous thing to do because it was mined. And uh, you've got to be very careful where you put your foot. Occasionally you see a dog go pow, boom. But anyway, I climbed over the beach, and uh, there were two soldiers sitting on the beach. We weren't supposed to be there. Anyway, they were looking out at sea. It was a lovely day. It always was in the beginning of the war. And uh, Thursday, I suppose it was September, and these two aeroplanes came towards us. They separated and came down a machine gun to Saul, or cannon fired, and shot several people. And I didn't take any notice of this. I started running. I didn't lie down. I was told to lie down. I remember I was only five, maybe six. And I went running, and there's all this shrapnel coming down all over the place. And um, that's the first experience I have of being on a beach. It was pretty unnerving, but uh, I've been on many other beaches. I've been on beaches in Goa which is sweet and nice unless you dislike the smell of cannabis. Another beach in Australia, which is called Balmoral, which is just heaven on earth, and that's like it was in 1931, or something like that, without the Germans all being bobbed. And it's just a wonderful place to be. I'm Katie Balls, and my favourite beach can be found in my hometown, North Berwick, in East Lovian. Robert Louis Stevenson looked to the North Berwick coast for literary inspiration. I head there for less noble pursuits. Chips on the beach, often in the rain, hermit crab hunting or spotting, gannet watching and an annual New Year's dip. Back in the 16th century, it was home to witch trials, but these days North Berwick is a friendlier place. While tourists flock there in the summer, quiet coves are there to be discovered if you're willing to spend the day exploring the various trails. My favourite beach, Douglas Murray, Uig, Isle of Lewis, 
During my thirties, I worked out why I dislike beach holidays. It is not the sun lounger extortion, tattoos, or other people's music, but the fact that there are other people on the beach. Growing up, I was spoilt by family holidays on the Isle of Lewis. There, you get miles of golden sand all to yourself to run on, build dams on, fish from the rocks on, and eventually learn to drive on. Facing the Atlantic with nothing between it and America, if anybody knows of a more beautiful beach, I should like to hear about it. Naturally, it is not there to be sunbathed on, nor is the sea there to be swum in. On exceptional days, you might take off your shoes and go in up to your ankles. I have heard of people going in up to their knees, but here, even after the midges come out, is the place under the sky most like heaven. I'm Nora Freeman, and my favourite beach is in Margate in Kent. We'll always have Thanet. You can keep your Paris, your Rome, your Casablanca. There's no more romantic place on earth than Margate when it drizzles. The replacement bus service from Ramsgate, the December rain becoming sleet, the wind, the trawlers, the derelict mini golf course, the boyfriend down on one knee in the bladder rack. I'm thinking of having a t-shirt printed. I went to Margate and all I got was this lousy proposal. No wasteland Margate now with its hipster regency, its ironic roller coasters, its semi-demi gentrification. Turner's Margate, Tracy's Margate. Artists will tell you about the light of St Ives, but Margate light is like a match-striking magnesium. Margate has my heart. I'm Tanya Gold. I've been going to Porthcurno since I was eight. The breaking waves are strong. My father pulled me out once. I remember that very clearly. Perhaps that is why I love it. You walk down a sandy path surrounded in summer by wild flowers and you see it. It is shaped like an irregular triangle. It has pale gold sand, far paler than most Cornish sand, because it is made of seashells. There are granite outcrops rising to the Minac, Rowena Cade's theatre on the cliffs. The sea is also very pale here and clean. I came out of the sea at Brighton once, bright red in colour. Since then, clean water has been very important to me. I can't think there is a better swimming beach in England. It is steeply shelved, so you don't have to walk in, inch by inch, shivering. You take a few steps and you dive. As you swim, you can see the Logan Rock, the famous rocking stone, which a British seaman pushed over in 1824. He was made to put it back, although not personally, and it rocks no more. Sometimes, if swimming early or late, you can see the Salonian on its way to the Isles of Scilly or coming back. The Isles are the last land before North America. I love swimming at the edge of Europe. I was swimming here a few years ago in summer and I realised I couldn't remember when I last felt so happy. I don't know if I was remembering the happiest days of my infancy, but I probably was. So I moved to Penwith to chase it. <laughs> 